spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Harsha Walia, who is an award-winning award author of Undoing Border Imperialism. Uh, she's training the law and a community organizer and campaigner in migrant justice, anti-capitalist, feminist, and anti-imperialist movements, including No One is Illegal and Women's Memorial March Committee, and she's the author of a brand new book, I'm not yeah, a brand new book called Border and Rule, uh, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism, uh, which is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello, Harsha. Hi, thanks so much for chatting with me. <laughs> no, thank you so much uh, for you to <laughs> take the time. Uh, I'm very, very happy we're, we're doing this. Um, me too. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and the book, the book is published at Haymarket Books, I should have said. Um, and so before we, before we mention that book, I know that, um, I mean, as you know, the Phenomenalist put a special emphasis on the politics of space. And I know that for you, it's always very important to, to, to acknowledge the land and its legitimate owners on which you are when you, when you intervene uh, somewhere. Uh, so uh, I, of course, want to give you a chance to, to do so. But also, I wanted to perhaps um, even talk a little bit more about uh, this uh, this ritual of or this, uh, ceremoniality of land acknowledgement and why it's still so important despite the many uh, institutions and people in in many settler colonies which are using it as a sort of weird, uh, very disturbing disclaimer or some sort of white guilt white guilt uh, appeasing ritual. So could you could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that great question. Um, I'll start by saying that I'm on the lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squahomish Indigenous Nations. And these Indigenous Nations continue to steward these lands, these waters, um, and to affirm their jurisdiction and their laws on the lands that I'm on. And for me, that um, that land acknowledgement, if you will, uh, is you know really to position myself and locate myself here on these lands in the context of migrant justice work, right? So as I'm talking about um, the struggles of migrants and refugees against borders and in the context of settler states, it's to constantly affirm and recognize that the jurisdiction and the laws on these lands are those not of the settler colonial illegal Canadian state, but those of indigenous nations. And I see these struggles as, as interconnected, right? In that there cannot be migrant justice unless and until 
uh, there is also indigenous sovereignty and indigenous self-determination. And that frames um, the politics of movements that I've been part of, like the no one is illegal movement, because one of the things that we say is no one is illegal, Canada is illegal, that these are connected struggles. Um, and for me, that is very distinct uh, from the Canadian settler state who performs land acknowledgments, you know, land acknowledgments as um, these token gestures, these hollow gestures, um, and from, you know, for whom, you know, the, the state performance is not about solidarity, it's not about land back, um, it's about ticking off the boxes of having said that they've, you know, done a land acknowledgement and not meaningfully engaging in relationship or struggle um, or solidarity. And so those are, you know, very different um, positions and intentions and actions. And so I think um, for me, it comes from a place of, um, as someone who's moved to these territories, who resides on these territories, who's now settled on these territories, it's to um, express my solidarity and my responsibility and my relations, not to uh, the Canadian state or making appeals to the Canadian state, but to affirm and struggle alongside indigenous nations fighting for land back. And so um, for me, it's personal and it's also deeply political because it's the orientation of migrant justice struggle. Thank you. Um, so you're starting to starting to engage with your book. And um, my first question is rather long. <laughs> I apologize to everyone, but every, every other, sorry, a little bit shorter. Uh, but uh, I, first of all, wanted to say how incredible your book, your book is and, uh, and everybody should, should, be, should be really reading it. Um, and, and it's nice to be able to say everybody as in, <laughs> as in, as in thinking of many people around the world and not, not in the sort of usual uh, North American or West, West European centers uh, where uh, quite often, you know, we, we uh, tend to stay con constrained into and, uh, and uh, the, the true internationalism of that book is, is really, really uh, fantastic. And uh, I think it's, <laughs> thanks. Uh, and it contains uh, it contains many entrance doors uh, that everybody so much so that everybody seems to be able to read it in their own way. Uh, at least that's what I felt when I was listening to your to the conversation you had with the author of your foreword, uh, Robin Kelly. Uh, that's a conversation that's available online, as well as with the author of your afterwards, <laughs> Nikis Des, uh, uh, which is also available online on the on the Red Media. Um, and my own approach, uh, unsurprisingly, is more uh, spatial. Uh, and I'm reading, I'm reading your book. Uh, I felt I've, I read your book in the same way I would be reading like a very complex and detailed map. And, um, and so I tried, I tried to sort of summarize a little bit uh, uh, what this map was, would include. Um, when most national state myth uh, envisions borders as perfect and immutable, geometric lines on non-conflicted sovereign land, you show in so many ways that these lines often move, they duplicate, they have a thickness, and quite often they reinforce the settler colonial conditions on which they have been traced. There are only one part of a carceral archipelago that counts islands, uh, detention centers, jails, prisons, courts, etc. Uh, so that counts island, those islands inside, but also outside the nation state. And finally, uh, that these borders delineate a legal milieu in which the various markers of racialization are explicitly or implicitly turned into laws that create the conditions 
in which some will be deemed as law abiders or citizens and others as criminal or undocumented and or undocumented. And of course, labor and the various regimes of capitalist exploitations are also front and center of the reality you're describing. Uh, could you perhaps address this very geographical dimension of your book? Sure, thank you. And thank you for that, that summary. I feel like that's all I needed to write. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I guess I'll you know, start by saying, and in, in this way, I'm of course um, not the first person to say it, but which is that when we think about borders, oftentimes we think about borders and um, you know, border securitization and border controls as happening at the site of the border, right? So at that, um, and that line on the map, if you will. Um, but really bordering regimes are, as you note, uh, they're multiplying, they're everywhere, they're internalized within the nation state, they're externalized beyond the nation state. Um, and for me, that's, uh, that's central to understanding bordering regimes, because bordering regimes are less about demarcating space and territory, though they're also about that. Um, but they're also about creating and reproducing and maintaining um, systems of power, right? Particularly racial capitalism, racial citizenship, imperialism, and more. And so um, the ways in which bordering regimes multiply, um, I think are as important, if not more important than thinking about the securitization that's happening at the site of the border itself. And here I'm thinking about how important it is to, for example, not focus only on the border wall at the US-Mexico border, um, you know, which is that the massive towering symbol of um, US exclusion and imperialism and nationalism. Um, and most exemplified by Donald Trump, right? Like shortly after um, he lost the election, one of the first places he showed up uh, was the wall, right? To, to reaffirm that kind of MAGA message. Um, but really the multiplication of the border and the elasticity of the border that we see under, for example, um, President Obama, Bill Clinton, now Joe Biden, that kind of uh, multiplication of bordering regimes um, is just as, if not more harmful um, as the kind of symbolism of the border wall. And so thinking about that through an international lens um, at various sites is, you know, in various places is important because it um, helps us to see how the border multiplies. And the two uh, kind of main ways in which I think through this is one is the internalization of the border and the second is the externalization of the border. And so the internalization of the border is as it sounds, the ways in which bordering regimes um, exist within the nation state, right? Such that uh, when a migrant or a refugee or an undocumented person crosses the border, the struggle doesn't end um, once they have entered within the nation state. And um, I think this is most evident in, in two ways. One is the ways in which the entire um, apparatus within the nation state is oriented towards uh, the exploitation and creating immense fear and precarity for people with precarious status, right? So if you are um, even in supposedly putatively social democratic states like Canada or you know the Nordic countries, um, in those countries, the kind of... Um, public welfare systems, you know, from everything from hospitals uh, to childcare to schools um, become the, the kind of front line of, of, um, 
of checking people's immigration status, right? Of border exclusion. Um, so people like teachers, people like doctors, people like childcare workers, people like social workers who we tend to view as you know, the public caring sector can often mutate into effectively becoming border guards, right? Whether they like it or not, or do it intentionally or not. Their, their jobs become to police people's immigration status, to turn them in um, if they're undocumented, to refuse them service. Um, such that even if people are within the nation state, they're effectively not able to access um, any of those kind of social welfare pillars of the nation state, right? So um, that is one of the ways in which internalization works. Um, and then, you know, of course, parallel to that is the massive carceral system of policing and prisons, which become an effective pipeline for deportation and expulsion. And, you know, within which especially uh, black people, Muslim people, those who are most likely to be targeted by police are then also then more targeted um, in the, you know, criminal legal system to deportation legal system pipeline. Um, and so that is, you know, one of the ways in which the border is internalized, right, where immigration enforcement effectively becomes uh, a function within the nation state, not only at the border. And in the United States, for example, um, you know, there was several years where half of all federal um, arrests were immigration related, right? So um, we see this, uh, this seamless connection between these kinds of carceral regimes of police and prisons and immigration enforcement. The other ways in which the border is internalized um, is, uh, I would argue, is migrant worker programs. So migrant worker programs are increasingly becoming the template of racial capitalism, which you note, um, you know, where migrant labor is cheapened. And one of the methods of that cheapening is the border, right? So we know that um, labor in the global South uh, is not cheap labor, it's deliberately cheapened through centuries of extortion and exploitation and colonialism and capitalism. Um, and now, and increasingly, the border also works to create conditions of um, exploitation, right? So when migrants come without full immigration status, whether they're undocumented or they're on temporary visas, um, whether that, you know, that's a, it's effectively a, a new form of indentureship. And, you know, if, if migrant workers um, organize, uh, try to unionize, try to assert their rights, then that makes them incredibly susceptible, not only to termination, but also to deportation. So we have a system where the border acts as a fix to capital accumulation and effectively segments migrant workers as a different pool of labor, right? So they're called migrant workers, they're called temporary, all of which are euphemisms for third world workers. So effectively third world workers within the first world, um, but within third world conditions, if you will. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the ways in which the border segments migrant workers from so-called citizen workers, and often spatially as well, right? Like um, active, effective um, segregation. So, you know, domestic workers who are uh, locked and contained in the homes of their employers. And, you know, that's not an exaggeration. There's a report that was done in Lebanon about the kafala system um, where the report was called their home is my prison because that many domestic workers experienced the employer's home as a prison um, of you know containment and control and and um, just total surveillance of their lives 
and you know, many agricultural workers around the world are forced to live in labor camps, again, under conditions of curfew and surveillance where they're not able to leave. Um, so again, you know, effectively segregated in different living and working areas than so-called citizen workers. And so you know, these are some of the ways in which the border is internalized, where that kind of exclusion and precarity and surveillance and policing is happening within the nation state against migrants and refugees, even though they are effectively within the nation state. And the other side to this is the externalization of the border, which is that all the technologies of border control um, that we associate as happening only at the border, like you know, drone surveillance, um, you know, massive immigration raids, detention centers, mass concentration camps, et cetera, or you know, drownings, um, border killings in the in in the desert, the Sonoran Desert at the U.S.-Mexico border, or in the Mediterranean, um, you know, as we know, the world's deadliest border. These kinds of controls are happening increasingly in other countries. So immigration enforcement is being externalized or outsourced, if you will, to countries in the global south. Um, so we have, for example, the US increasingly externalizing its border um, to Mexico, right? And so some of the scenes that we see about US, uh, or sorry, of Mexican immigration authorities or Mexican government officials tear gassing um, and detaining Central American migrants is at the behest of uh, American immigration authorities. And this was really championed and perfected under the Obama administration. And in the EU, um, we see, of course, the externalization of the border increasingly into the Sahel region, into North Africa, West Africa, East Africa, um, and you know, boots on the ground, billions of euros going into securitizing Mauritania, Tunisia, Libya, Niger, just, you know, as we know, the entire region, billions of euros are, are going into securitizing the countries um, on the African continent against migrants and refugees, or in the case of Australia, you know, Australia uses trade agreements um, and kind of dangles them in a contemporary form of imperialism to force countries like Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and Nauru uh, to accept border controls and migration prevention and outsourced detention centers. And so, you know, one of the arguments that I make in the book is that the, the new frontiers of border militarization are not necessarily countries in, in the global north and high income countries or and you know imperialist countries like the US or Canada or Fortress EU or Australia, but rather one of the contemporary forms of imperialism is imperialist countries outsourcing migration prevention and border controls to countries in the global south, right? By using and entrenching and maintaining and exacerbating dynamics of imperialism to force countries like Libya, like Papua New Guinea, like Nauru, like Tunisia, like Mexico, and you know, on and on and on, like Turkey, um, to enact border control methods and border militarization. These countries are the frontiers of border militarization because of the externalization of the border, because the border is multiplying, because the border is literally everywhere, um, and increasingly so um, with technology, right? Like drone surveillance um, has exacerbated that even more. And so I think you know, those are some of the ways in which we can think about the spatiality of borders is, is existing beyond a line on the map uh, and really just encompassing the totality, increasingly encompassing the totality of, of the planet. Thank you for this incredibly 
synthetic uh, uh, account for all this very complex map and uh, and um, and you know you you said that you you wanted to move beyond the idea of looking at a line on the map and um, which is which is what you what you just did of course but but also you do not you do not um, you do you're not you're not uh, you're not fetishizing that line but you're also not moving away from it saying like okay there's nothing happening there uh, or anything you're showing how the the thickness of this uh, of this line is also is a, is a murderous uh, uh, thickness whether it's in the the desert of um, uh, between between Mexico and the U.S. or or the Mediterranean Sea or uh, or um, we could we could talk also about the the Mozambique Canal uh, or uh, or indeed uh, on the offshore of, of Australia um, and then and then comes the the line uh, the line in a, in slightly thinner but still with that with that thickness that uh, that uh, uh, that I don't know that I I found I found quite um, interesting for many years now, but anyway, that's not that's not the problem here. But uh, all this idea of um, this idea of the of the line here, you still you still uh, look at it on the first part of your book. I mean, you you as you mentioned, you you definitely the book also very much uh, describe uh, as a, the the bordering regimes in uh, in fortress Europe and its experimentation in in. Uh, with the Kafala in uh, in the Levant and the Gulf uh, the Gulf uh, states uh, in Australia, but if we go back to this very first part of the book and and going back indeed at this at the line that separates those two settler colonies that uh, are called uh, the United States of America and the United the United Mexican States, um, and how uh, I, you show remarkably well how um, the line itself has. Uh, very much splitting. Uh, I mean, is is fully part of the settler colonial apparatus and has been splitting indigenous nations. You you even quote someone saying that it's it's not us who cross the border; it's the borders that crossed us. Um, and also a very very much necessary reminder uh, that the people that we we sort of uh, that many people deemed as as migrants uh, uh, coming from Central America are also from for many of them, indigenous people from the continent itself. So there's there's this uh, this double complexity here that are so necessary to to remind and so different from the sort of narrative that we usually uh, and when I say we, I mean like even like you know people in the left and anti-racist uh, activism and, and and all this. We need to we need to bring this complexity. I think. Can you can you tell us about it? Yeah, and I appreciate that that question, because I think one of the things um, that I was really trying to do out in this, in this book comes from a lot of thinking and, you know, necessary critique that's been leveled against migrant justice movements, particularly in North America. Um, you know, I don't, as I don't know the dynamics elsewhere as well, but I'm, I'm sure it, it may ring true, um, but leveled against the migrant justice movement and necessarily so uh, about you know, the, the anti-Indigenous and anti-Black racism of the migrant justice movement, right? Where we, as, as you point out, tend to think of migrant justice struggles as the struggle of um, non-Indigenous and non-Black people, right? The kind of, um, the reproduction of the stereotype of, of um, 
you know, brown uh, Latinx people, for example, who are not black or not indigenous, which is blatantly untrue. Um, and also it, you know, so, and it also ignores how um, anti-migrant racism necessarily is constituted um, through the foundational violences of indigenous elimination, anti-black enslavement and imperialist expansion. Um, and so I wanted to, to think through that, um, you know, and of course, in, in that sense, think through and learn from um, indigenous and black organizers and scholars who, who've been thinking and, and writing about this. Um, and, you know, here I would, here I would say that, you know, the work of um, the Red Nation, for example, the work of Nick Estes, the work of Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Audra Simpson, um, Shannon Speed, and, you know, Indigenous scholars and organizers in that regard, uh, and Black organizers and scholars where I am in, in Canada, like, um, like Robin Maynard, Dion Brand, Ronaldo Walcott, um, Idil Abdullahi, and many others who have also been um, thinking about borders and migration and what it means in relationship to settler colonialism and anti-Black enslavement. Um, and so I'll, I'll say two things, two things here. Uh, one is, is, as you note, that you know, when, when we're thinking about people and communities who are displaced and become migrants, it's so important to think about that in relationship to um, Indigenous and Black liberation, right? So that, for example, in the North American context, so many people from Mexico and so many people um, from Central America who are displaced from their lands uh, as a result of ongoing colonialism and extraction and capitalism are indigenous peoples. Um, and also if we think about it globally, it is, it is true that the vast majority of people who are being displaced are disproportionately indigenous and black communities, right? Um, and so it's really important to not uh, erase that, uh, that complexity and that reality, as you note. Um, in the US context, you know, uh, a number of um, communities that are stuck in Mexico as a result of Trump's remain in Mexico protocols are indigenous people and African people, right? So um, at the US-Mexico border, a people's assembly uh, that was started in, in Mexico was a people's assembly of people from across the African continent who were immobilized at, in Mexico. And you know, that's often not talked about or discussed um, when we're thinking about people who were immobilized as a result of the Remain in Mexico protocols. We think of uh, Central Americans, but not Africans. Um, and within that, when we think about Central Americans, we tend to think about it as this kind of pan Latinx um, kind of identity, but as Shannon Speed, would remind us it is so important to think and uh, highlight the, the particular struggles of indigenous people um, who she argues um, you know, that there's a structural vulnerability um, to the reality of indigenous migrants, right? Because their migration represents, as she would say, a transit between Latin American and Anglo-American settler state structures, both of which are built on indigenous elimination. And so it's really important to um, to recognize that a large proportion of Central American migrants and also Mexican migrants are in fact indigenous peoples, right? Who were colonized by the Spanish and captured by Mexico and Central American nation states and who have become kind of subsumed into this pan-Latinx identity, um, but really have been criminalized through the imposition of borders on, on their lands. And so um, both of those are very important to uh, hold in terms of the reality 
of indigenous and black people who are migrants and disproportionately impacted by border militarization. Um, because of course, you know, carceral regimes are underwritten foundationally by anti-black and anti-indigenous violence. Um, and in that way, the second point that I wanted to make, um, and you know, you're asking about the first part of the book. One of the first parts of the book is to interrogate the formation of the US-Mexico border. Because again, you know, oftentimes in, in the contemporary conversations, when we're talking about the US-Mexico border, um, we're talking about migrant exclusion. Oftentimes, you know, the narrative, the, the real narrative of um, Mexican and Central American migrants being excluded, detained, deported. Um, but if we were to interrogate the formation of the border, I think what it would, what it would show us and reveal to us is that it is impossible um, to think about border exclusion and bordering regimes without also understanding how you know, early US bordering practices were conceived as a method of eliminating indigenous people and controlling black people, right? So US border violence is structurally bound up in anti-indigenous and anti-black genocide. Um, and you know, without going into a whole history there, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll just point out a few things. One is that the entire formation of the US-Mexico border was born out of conquest. Um, and you know, that was the conquest of when the US seized more than 525,000 square miles of territory in Mexico um, in 1848, right? The forced Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which really was forced annexation of half of Mexico by the United States, right? So the border was written through conquest. And that includes um, the conquest, of course, here of indigenous peoples, indigenous peoples whose lands were seized, sovereign nations um, who were forcibly assimilated into the US nation state. Um, and then, you know, forcibly uh, assimilated into US citizenship. Um, and that kind of genocidal elimination was furthered. Um, and in relationship um, to, to anti-Black enslavement, one of the kind of central methods of US early US bordering practices in the United States was shortly after the annexation um, of Mexican territory in 1848, like two years after uh, came the Fugitive Slave Act of, of 1850. And under the Fugitive Slave Act, um, you know, slaveholders were allowed to kidnap and capture black people that they claimed had escaped to the so-called free states and or to Mexico. And so some of the earliest kind of border patrols, um, as we can, you know, when we think about border patrols and we think about um, borders working to keep people out, one of the earliest methods of border controls in the United States was actually to keep black people in, right? It was to maintain um, the power of, of slave owners and slaveholders. Um, who would, you know, and so they, they uh, formed border militias and they swelled their ranks from slave patrols. And these slave patrols would conduct cross-border raids in the quest to capture black people to prevent them from escaping to Mexico. Um, and so, you know, here again, I, I echo the work of, of Robin Maynard and cite the work of Ronaldo Walcott and, and Idil Abdullahi, all of whom really emphasize how it is impossible um, to think about the politics of migration outside of anti-Black racial logics, right? So they argued that the entire politics of, of migration is embedded in anti-Black racial logics and really take their 
um, logic of control of movement and carcerality um, from the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and Robin Maynard particularly argues that the global quote, I'll quote her here, is that you know, the global positioning of black life as enslavable placed black migrants in a structural position that differs from other migrants of color, end quote. And I think you know, these are some of the ways in which um, we're being pushed, necessarily pushed to think um, of borders as anti-migrant and that that is constitutive of anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism, right? These are not just parallel structures of racism, they are constituted through each other and that we cannot think of processes of border formation outside of um, empire, enslavement and elimination, that they work through each other. And I think in that way, that history is then instructive uh, for us to think in our contemporary era of you know how do we how do we think of relationships between migrant justice struggles between black abolition struggles between indigenous decolonization struggles and i think it informs us and perhaps orients us slightly differently um, than the ways in which we're we're trained to think in the left as you know well talking about relationships and uh and and uh, maybe another another word that I, i'd like to bring here because i think what your book does such an incredible job at is to demonstrate the interconnectedness uh, of, on the one hand, of the imperial fascist regimes of violence, as the BGP in India, uh, Bolsonaro's Brazil, uh, uh, I was going to say Netanyahu's, uh, uh, Net Net Netanyahu's mm -hmm. in occupied Palestine, but of course, uh, in the case of Palestine, it, it goes back. Uh, Netanyahu sometimes is a, is an easy. Uh, an easy uh, straw man to 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 shoot at when clearly uh, it's so much deeper but it's probably it's probably true for india and brazil as well uh, but so could you talk about those this interconnectedness and then the other interco interconnectedness which involved circuits of international internationalist solidarity which uh, of course we want to to push forward yeah sure and you know i think um for me that internationalism is so needed because um, oftentimes exactly as you point out um, we either tend to um, focus on you know straw men particular right-wing leaders like Trump or Netanyahu or Modi without interrogating these more structural um, kind of state formations and the ways in which they travel um, and I think also the internationalism which I think is necessary because sometimes we can become ironically kind of focused on the nation state, right? And, you know, which state is worse than the other um, and whether, you know, the US is, is worse than the UK or, you know, whether Australia is worse than New Zealand, et cetera. Um, and that, uh, that doesn't really give us that transnational lens that we desperately need because these structures travel. Um, many of them were rooted in British empire um, and European empire. And so of course traveled. Um, If I may, Harsha, it's even a very, I, I, I'm more and more convinced that this whole like, oh, France is worse than the other and everything is still a very mm. nationalist kind of way of yeah. thinking. Like it's, yeah. it's like, no, we're the worst, we're the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like a perverse, perverted kind of left nationalism, right? Like it's the yeah. opposite of we're the best, it's like we're the worst. Um, and of course, you know, depending on the position of particular nation states in the current global economy, they, they may or may not be worse in terms of their capacity to enact violence. But of course, you know, um, so many empires um, have, have worse histories, right? So sometimes the kind of myopic 
view on the United States really leaves Europe off the hook, for example, or Canada. Um, and so, yeah, I think precisely as you're noting, right, that kind of who's worse really just leaves out the whole global lens and can be paradoxically nationalistic. Um, and then, you know, paradoxically, the right um, ends up um, building this kind of internationalist right wing movement, if you will, and we're left still kind of hobbling in our national frameworks. And so I think, um, you know, for those reasons, it's, it's really important that we uh, that we see and understand the ways in which, despite the, the important differences and sometimes contradictions between um, forces on the right, that there are there are homologies and similarities. Um, and you know, here one of the ones that I trace in the book is you know some of the the relationships and similarities between white nationalism, Zionism, and Hindutva, which you know may seem contradictory on its face because you know white nationalists are completely racist and anti-Semitic. Um, but really, if we if we think about them as ethno-nationalism, we see how they merge, um, and particularly how they merge at the political level, right? At the state level, the relationships between the United States, Israel, and India is some of the most dangerous um, alliances in the world, as countries that control the world's largest and, and most powerful militaries, um, regardless of who those figureheads are, right? Some, some figureheads will um, escalate uh, that right-wing rhetoric, but structurally they're they're founded um, all three uh, as, as settler colonial as settler states, right? And in in this way, I, I say that deliberately because the United States is a settler colonial state, which is genocidal, um, as is Israel uh, when it comes to Israeli apartheid and Zionism, and as is India, right? When we think about um, Kashmir, which is the world's most militarized zone in the entire world, and so um, there are differences and also there are homologies. And I think those homologies are, are more important if we are to think critically on the left um, so that we don't allow countries like India uh, and leaders like Modi to get away uh, with this kind of, you know, this rhetoric of post-colonialism or, you know, right now in the context of the farmers protests where Modi is telling other countries not to interfere because it's a form of imperialism, um, which is a, a a really, um, again, perverted kind of rhetoric, right? Really weaponizes anti-colonial struggle to actually further colonialism and fascism. Um, and so this, um, this kind of uh, global escalation um, of the right, I think is really important to be countered by a, a radical and internationalist left that is transnational, that is internationalist and, and committedly internationalist. Um, for all the reasons I just mentioned, and you know, the last one I'll, I'll mention that I think is, is particularly important in relationship to the border is because really so many forms of um, right-wing rhetoric and nationalism really hinges on uh, anti-migrant xenophobia, right? And um, nationalism as a force kind of creates the dividing line between the us and the them, the foreigner, um, and you know the person who belongs and that kind of social organization of difference that maintains power by which you know race and class and nationalism are reproduced um, really operates through anti-migrant xenophobia not only but it is one of the main ways in which that operates you know and that kind of rhetoric of you know protect our borders protect our jobs protect our culture um, that kind of um, again really dangerous nationalistic jargon uh, which entrenches racial citizenship 
um, really is a unifying kind of issue among the far right, right? So I think it's really important that um, progressive movements get clear, get very clear on their positions when it comes to um, migrant rights and migrant justice, right? So for example, not calling for the expulsion of migrant workers as a left response. So we're increasingly seeing, um, have historically seen, and are again, I think seeing an uptick in labor unions, for example, or certain strands of labor movements that, that are calling on the protection of the working class through border controls, right? Who's, who are seeing um, migrants as somehow an attack on the working class. And that is really just racist right-wing rhetoric that um, is racist and also uh, a misreading, a misreading of how borders work, right? Borders work in the service of capital, not the other way around. They don't protect against capital, capital. they work in the interests of capital. Um, so to think that the border will protect against migrant workers, to think that migrant workers are somehow responsible for um, lower wages and not bosses, right? Like all of this is a, um, a really misplaced uh, and again, frankly, racist rhetoric that we have to counter um, again in the kind of spirit of internationalism. Thank you. Well, I talked a lot already, so my last questions will be very short, uh, but hopefully yours will, your answer won't. <laughs> uh, so you, you finished the book with a, a very evocative vision of, an, of abolitionist and solidarity weaving futures. Uh, could you simply describe them to our listeners? Yeah, I think, um, you know, following on, on the idea that the border is more than um, a map on, or you know, a line on the map. For me, that kind of abolitionist vision um, is rooted in the fact that, you know, it's not enough to say open the borders, um, you know, but we really have to call for no borders. And calling for no borders means radically altering um, the social relationships of power beyond the site of the border itself, right? Like in order to dismantle borders and the kind of fundamental divides that they entrench between you know, the so-called global North and the so-called global South, um, the divides that they maintain between black and brown people and white people, the divides they maintain between rich and poor, right? The divides that they maintain between sites of extraction um, and, and sites of consumption. These kinds of divides, um, can only be eliminated through a radical transformation um, of our entire world, our entire, and all of the systems as we know it, right? So we can't uh, simply organize to fight for migrants and refugees outside of fighting for an end to imperialism, right? So to me, for example, the freedom to move and the freedom to stay are necessary corollaries of each other, that people have the right not to be displaced from their lands and people have the right to move. Um, you know, because that really has to grapple with the fact that people should not be forced out of their homes, right? We want an end to imperialist wars, to conquest, to extractive um, capitalist trade agreements, to climate change, you know, corporate fueled climate change, all of this must end uh, because people have a right to remain in, in, their, in their lands. Um, and in their homes and people again have the right to move. So these are, um, I think, corollaries to each other. Um, and, you know, really to dismantle that kind of 
racial citizenship, ideas of racial citizenship and ideas of uh, racial capitalism. These are systems that have to be dismantled because they work through each other. Citizenship and capitalism and the state are, are seamlessly connected to each other. Um, and again, you know, giving some of those examples that I gave earlier about the early kind of formations of the border, which was completely underwritten by racial capitalism and racial citizenship. And so um, for me, that kind of abolitionist vision, uh, which demands that there are no borders, which demands that there are no prisons, which demands that there are no wars, which demands that there are no police, which demands that there are no sweatshops. Uh, these are all connected visions um, of freedom and liberation and really completely transform and allow us to dream outside of the, the confines of the structures that we're currently confined in. Well, Harsha, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with me today. I was very, very happy we had this conversation. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This podcast is produced by The Phenomenalist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thephenomenalist.net.